Like many of you, I love to read. I usually read about 40 or 50 books a year, and I've, I'm all, I've always been a, a sucker for biographies. Some of, they've always been some of my favorites. People are fascinating to me. I learned so much as I study the backgrounds and the experiences, the ups and the downs of people from a variety of walks of life. Sometimes I look for life hacks as I read biographies. A couple of weeks ago, I finished a work that was by uh, Justice Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court. And over the last couple of years, I've read of Corey Ten Boom and Hillary Clinton and Andy Griffith and Truett Cathy, but not on Sundays. And I've read of Abraham Lincoln and I've read of Elizabeth Smart. And I've read of George H.W. Bush, President 41. And I've also read the memoirs of our very own Betty Gast. Biographies usually have a, a single person that's at the center of the story. Of course, other people are always present. But the entirety of the work is centered around a single person. For Christians, our entire world... Our, all of our life is centered upon a single person, Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's Paul's point in the opening of his letter to the church at Rome. It's all about Jesus. So if you haven't done so yet, would you please find the book of Romans in your copy of the Scriptures. It's the sixth book of the Christian New Testament, and it's on page 791 of the Pew Bible. We're here at the beginning couple of, of, of studies in our series on the book of Romans that describes to us the undeserved, the unmatched, and the unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul uses these first 17 verses in chapter 1 to set aside, to, to set the priority of the gospel of Jesus. So we've we kind of outlined these six these six areas, these six sections of the book of Romans, and the first 17 verses are all about the priority of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Last week we noted that a, that a gospel-prioritized life is, is God's work. A gospel-prioritized life has more to do with Him working in us than we might realize. Our text this morning is in verses 3 through 7, and it points us to the center of a gospel-prioritized life, to the person on whom the whole redemptive story revolves. A life or a church that prioritizes the gospel has as their center the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. Would you please follow along as I read again the first 17 verses of Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised before, promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are also ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you that 
for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, making a request, if by any means now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end that you may be established, that is, that I may be comforted or encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and of me. Now, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I have purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, I was prohibited, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you also that are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Prioritizing the gospel. First, it's the work of God. And now we see that a life that prioritizes the gospel has Christ at its center. John Stott said it this way. The person and work of Christ are the rock upon which the Christian religion is built. If he, Christ, is not who he said he was, and if he did not do what he had come to do, the foundation is undermined. And the whole superstructure will collapse. Take Christ from Christianity, and there is practically nothing left. Christ is the center of Christianity. All else is circumference. Again, we'll find in these verses that we don't have specific instruction to go do step one, step two, step three, and out pops a gospel-prioritized life. It doesn't work that way. These verses are informational and, and factual. And sure, there's going to be ways that we can respond to the data that we, that we take in here in, the, in these verses. But first and foremost is the truth that for the Christian, Jesus is all the world to me. Christian, ask God this morning to reveal to you who or what is competing to be at the center of your life. You see, a life that prioritizes the gospel recognizes, acknowledges that Jesus is worthy of being at the center of your life. So this morning, let's consider three factors from these verses, verses 3 through 7, three factors of Christ being at the center of our life. First of all is the glory factor. Look again at verses 3 and 4. Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. When you look at these two verses in the original Greek language, they build to a climax. They actually end with Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, the word order is, of the text would be more accurate if verse 4 ended with Jesus Christ our Lord. It carries the greater punch that way. It builds to a climax. So we could read it like this. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, 
and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is His name. Christ is His title. Jesus Christ means Jesus Messiah. Why should He be at the center of your life? Because He is a glorious God. He is a glorious Savior. We see His glory, first of all, in His incarnation. Paul reminds us that Jesus is, first of all, the Son of God. This whole gospel message that was promised beforehand by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures is the message of a single person, the Son of God. And God became a a man. We confess that this morning as we read the Apostles' Creed. Jesus, the Son of God, became a man. This is a foundational to the gospel message. Jesus took on humanity. He took on a human mind and human reasoning and a human body and a human soul. Paul tells us that Jesus descended from David. Now, when we read the Old Testament, we read that God had promised King David that the Messiah would would come from from King David's line and that the Messiah would, would set up his eternal kingdom. Here, Paul reminds the church in Rome and and thus us that Jesus came from the line of David, the glory of yet another fulfilled promise of God. But you see, it's not only that God became man. That's magnificent enough just to think that he took on humanity. But it's also something to consider what he gave up when he did that. He sacrificed the glories of heaven in order to come become become a human being. It reminds us of that great Christmas carol text. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. God with us. You see, Jesus taking on humanity is a huge deal. One reason is because it it came at such a sacrifice. It cannot be passed over with little consideration. It's a truth that displays the glory of our Savior. Friends, a God who was willing to lay aside all of the wonders of heaven to come to earth is worthy of being at the center of your life. But we not only see from this text the glory of his incarnation, we also see the glory of his resurrection. Paul, you'll remember, was was writing about 25 to 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. So we see in verse 4 that Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now it gets a little bit interesting here. We need to understand what it means that at the resurrection of Christ, he was declared to be the Son of God in power. What point is Paul making here? Something changed at the, point of, of, at the time of Christ's resurrection. The resurrection caused Jesus to be appointed Son, declared or designated as the Son of God in power. So the transition from from verse 3 to verse 4 is not talking just about Jesus moving from from a human Messiah to a divine Son of God. Rather, it's talking about Jesus moving from the Son as Messiah 
to the Son as both Messiah and the powerful reigning Lord over all. One commentator explained it this way. The pre-existent Son who entered into human experience as the promised Messiah was appointed, or as Paul says, declared on the basis of his resurrection to a new and a more powerful position in relation to the world. This is the same truth that we read of in the great passage in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, where Paul was writing to the church at Philippi. He says the same truth. Jesus, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled, he emptied himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, things on earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was the Son of God before his incarnation. He is always the Son of God. He does not become the Son of God at his resurrection, but his status or his function did change at his resurrection. You remember that when he came into the world, he didn't come as the Son of God in power. He came as a helpless baby into a a manger. Maybe it would help if we, we kind of thought about it this way. What if a king of a great nation traveled around the world, but instead of traveling with his great entourage, he travels as a a commoner? It's almost like he's undercover. His royalty is veiled, if you will. But his kingship has not stopped. His position of rule has not ceased. It is rather veiled for a time. When Jesus came as a baby, The power of the Son of God was veiled by his flesh. Jesus even testified to this truth when he prayed in John chapter, which recorded for us in John chapter 17. Here's what Jesus prayed. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus acknowledged that his glory was different in his incarnation pre-resurrection. So the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. The power of Christ's resurrection, therefore, declares, it, it declares, it appoints Jesus as the Son of God in power. The Greek word, therefore, declared, has the idea of, of, of marking off boundaries. In fact, we get our English word uh, horizon from it because it's a marked boundary. Back in the old days when families took those long road trips uh, to go see Grandpa and Grandma or wherever it was, the Grand Canyon, there was, uh, and it was long before those newfangled things called DVD players that were hanging from the ceilings in minivans, uh, we, we kind of understood what this word declared and marking off boundaries was, was all about, right? As kids, we'd sit in the back of the station wagon and we would mark off our boundaries on our seats and mercy be to the sibling that dared to cross that boundary in the back of the station wagon, right? Because they would fear having their hand or their finger or whatever cut off by the one who had marked off their boundaries. That's the kind of idea, marking off 
boundaries. Some of you are like, what's a station wagon? The sonship of Jesus Christ was marked off with absolute clarity in the incarnation. Paul explains to the church at Rome that Christ's resurrection, so his incarnation already marked some boundaries, but that Christ's resurrection was the most conclusive and irrefutable evidence of Jesus Christ's divine sonship, that he was the Son of God in power. Christ's resurrection was a display of his omnipotence, a demonstration of his ability to conquer death. And that superpower belongs to God alone. Paul again writes of it in Ephesians chapter 1. He says that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power in us according to the, great, the working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and his name is above every name not only in this age but also in the one to come. In Romans 1 then, Paul says that Jesus was thus declared to be the Son of God in power, and he was declared to be so by the Spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit. R.C. Sproul said it this way, When God the Holy Spirit raised the corpse of Jesus from the tomb, God was announcing to the world the sonship of Jesus. So by what evidence do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God? By the very testimony of God, who has declared him to be his son through the power of the resurrection. Jesus is appointed to be the ruling, reigning Lord over all. He has been given a name that is above every name. So because Jesus is the sovereign son of God and was raised from the dead, he is Lord over all. There's nothing that he does not rule over with his rule. Do you recognize him as your Lord? Christian, this is what you claim when you put your trust in him, that he is your Lord. This is what you testify when you are plunged beneath the waters of baptism, that he is your Lord. This is the truth that you share when you come to the table and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. That Jesus Christ is your Lord. But it must play out in all of your life. It's not just a verbal acknowledgement. The way that you treat others, the way that you spend your cash, the way that you speak, the words that exit your mouth, the places that you go, the people for whom you vote, the response to evil in this world, all is different because Jesus Christ is your Lord. He is the resurrected Son of God in power. Husbands, because Jesus is Lord, you can lead your home with humility and with love. Wives, because Jesus is your Lord, you can follow with strength and with satisfaction. Children, because Jesus is Lord, you have hope even when your parents screw up. Beloved, that's the glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because Jesus is the Son of God and is the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, our lives are foundationally different. 
And a God who was raised from from death to life is worthy of being at the center of your life. A God who was raised to rule with power, to rule over all, is worthy of being at the center of your life. No other person in history, including you, is worthy of centering all of your life around. Jesus will not fail you. Jesus cannot fail you. What a blessing that is for us as Christians. But I was reminded this week that if you're not a Christian, if you've not, if you've not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you don't have that hope, do you? You can center your life around a plain old human being from modern or ancient history, but that person's eventually going to fail you. There's no way around that truth. There will be disappointment if you center your life around a spouse or a politician or some hero of this world. There will never be disappointment if you center your life around Jesus. A life that prioritizes the gospel acknowledges, it recognizes that Jesus is worthy of being at the center of your life. So we see the glory factor, the glory of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we see the global factor. Look at verse number five with me. So speaking of of Christ again, he says, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all the nations for the sake of his name. Paul explains that it is through Jesus Christ our Lord that he himself received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations for the sake of Christ's name. Our multiple translations of the Bible and in multiple translations of this phrase, we get the same two English words, obedience and faith. But how does that fit into the rest of Paul's argument of, of what he's discussing here? It's teaching us that God's gospel brings about the obedience and faith of the people. The faith that he's speaking of here is faith or belief in Jesus Christ. Not just that Jesus once lived, that, or that, he, that believed that he was the Son of God. Saving faith is a trust in Jesus substituting work for you. In other words, saving faith says, I believe that I deserve to die for my sin, and that Jesus loved me enough to die in my place. Therefore, when he did that, he appeased God's anger for my sin. Saving faith understands that Jesus' blood that was shed on the cross pays for, it atones for the sins that I commit in this life. Friend, if you've gathered with us this morning and you're not trusting in Jesus in that way as your substitute, then this morning I invite you to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. You can do that right now in your seats. And if you have questions about what it means to be born again, to have faith in Jesus, talk with one of us after the service. We'd be more than happy to show you more from God's word of what faith in Christ looks like. And Paul uses this this other word, obedience, the obedience of faith. So it's not merely a statement of belief. It's more than simple intellect. Obedience of faith includes, involves the whole person, the entirety of the person. In other words, the gospel calls for obedience. Faith in Christ includes all of us. This is where we kind of have to to go down a little bit deeper, especially here in Lancaster County. We're 
where so many people claim faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, you can't just say, okay, I believe. Our life should prove it. Our life should give evidence of what we are believing. There can be a difference between professing Christ and actually trusting Christ, believing Christ. So Paul says that this gospel message is, is globally affected. He was an apostle, an apostle. He was one of those, a sent one. Remember, we looked at that word last week. And while we are not apostles, we are sent by the great commission that Jesus gave to us. So Paul is saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ calls him to take that message abroad, and it results in the obedience of faith among all of the nations. Among the nations. The gospel was going to be available beyond the Jews. It's for Gentiles alike. The gospel message is not for a specific people group. It's for humanity, for all people groups. And this grace and apostleship is brought about for the sake of the glory of God. It's for the sake of His name. The glory of Christ throughout the world as individuals from every people group exercise their faith and obedience to God, yielding to Jesus Christ as their Lord. Brother Taft prayed that this morning from, from Revelation 5, reminding us that every people, there will be people one day from every people group who are, who are walking in faith and obedience to God. I'm reading a book right now by a lady from, from Tehran, Iran, who was gloriously saved from the lies of Islam. I've heard recently of individuals from the villages in remote Cambodia, of individuals who have trusted in Christ. They believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Friends, this is the global factor that calls you to center your life around Jesus. A God who calls rotten sinners from all over the globe to obedience and faith is worthy of centering your life around. Christian, be reminded this morning of your evangelistic opportunity and responsibility. Who are you telling about Jesus? Who are you declaring the worth of Christ to? For whom are you praying that they will see that Jesus is worthy of them centering their life around him. A life that prioritizes the gospel recognizes that Jesus is worthy of being at the very center of your life. So Paul wants us to see the glory factor of Christ's incarnation and his resurrection. He wants to see us to see the global factor of Christ's call to obedience and faith. And lastly, we are pointed to the grace factor. Would you look at verses 6 and 7 with me? Among whom are ye also called? So he's talking about for the sake of his name among all the nations. Among whom are ye also called of Jesus Christ? To all who are in Rome, those who are beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There are three parts that give evidence to this grace. First of all, he's talking about those who are called, those who belong, and those who are loved. He uses this word in verse number 6, among whom ye are also the called of Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome, in verse 7, who are beloved of God and called to be saints. The church is made up of ones who are called out. That's what the, church, the word church means, that we have been called out. So if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are part of the called. You've been called out. 
1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Christians are called out. We've been called out of our bondage to sin. We have been called out of our sin and called unto Christ and his body. Verse number 7 says that we are called to be saints. I read this this week and it was so helpful to me. We are not called because we are saints. We are saints because we are called. You know what that is? It's grace. We are called. A God who, call, who called through the night to find your distant soul who calls you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, is worthy of being at the center of your life. Being called by God is grace. Second, the apostle refers to those who are of Jesus Christ. Look at verse number 6 again. Among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. He says that we are of Jesus Christ. We are of him. Some translations say that they belong. Uh, uh, verse 6, among whom you are called to belong to Jesus Christ. There's an old gospel song that speaks of that wonderful, comforting truth of belonging to Jesus. Once I was lost in sin's degradation, Jesus came down to bring me salvation, lifted me up from sorrow and shame. Now I belong to him. Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me, not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. What a wonderful truth to belong to Jesus. But how can someone belong to Jesus? Do we belong to Jesus because we come here into this, into this building and, and sing songs about Jesus every Sunday? Do we belong to Jesus because we spend time reading God's word and, and we can belong to him if we read enough of the word, if we come to church enough, or if we help other people, or if we're kind enough to other people. Do we belong to Jesus if we join in membership at a, in a congregation? No, you belong to Jesus because you're loved by God. And this is the third way we see the grace factor. God, God has set his love on us. How can you belong to Christ? You're just loved by God. My friends, that is grace. People belong to Christ because they are loved by God. They are loved by God because of grace. It almost doesn't seem right, does it? We are the enemy of God. Why in the world would he love us? Do you realize that you provide no good reason? None of us provide any good logical reason for God to love us. And he's done so anyway. He chooses to love you anyway. In fact, you've, you've, you've given him many reasons not to love you because you've rebelled against him over and over and over again. But he's loved you. He's set his love on you anyway. To all those who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you. A God who makes his enemies his own so that they belong to him is worthy of being the center of your life. I think if we more fully grasped the love of God that has been put onto us, that he has set on us, if we more fully grasp this idea that we are loved by God just as much as he loved his own son, our lives would be dramatically different. I mean, think about if we had that thought in our minds moment to moment that God has set his love on us 
just as much as he loved his own son. Think of how we would do when temptation came our way. His grace has called you out. It is his grace, by his grace, that you belong to him. And it is by sheer grace of God that he has loved you. A God who sets his love on those who rebelled against him is worthy of being at the center of your life. A life that prioritizes the gospel recognizes that Jesus is worthy of being at the center. There are a lot of great biographies that center around single individuals who have done some wonderful things, who have done some stupid things, who have done some dishonest things, who have done hard things, exemplary things, but none of them are worthy of centering your own life around them. There is no politician, there is no comedian, there is no national personality, there is no CEO, there is no mere human being anywhere in the world, presently or ever over the course of history, that is worthy of centering your life around because there is only one who is worthy of centering your life around. There is only one who is the way to God. There is only one who loved you in spite of you, who called to the distant night and moved you from darkness into light. There is only one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending. There is only one who is the creator and the sustainer of this world. There is only one who was promised beforehand by the prophets through the Holy Scriptures. There is only one who was descended from David according to the flesh. There is only one who was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And that one is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Friends, Romans 1 is calling you to have a life that prioritizes the gospel. And that happens as you recognize that Jesus alone, Jesus alone is worthy of being at the very center of your life. Friends, there is only one who is worthy of being in that spot. The only Son of the living God, Jesus Christ our Lord. When we see Jesus as being central to our lives, we will run from the sin that so easily besets us. Did you experience that this week? Anger, bitterness, hatred, covetousness, greed, lust? How about gossip or slander or malice? Unkindness, disrespect, rudeness. When we see Jesus as central, we'll run from the sin that so easily besets us. When we see Jesus at the center of our lives, we'll care more about telling people about him than we care about telling them about us. We'll have a priority that, 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 that sees, sees Jesus as greater than all, including us. When we see Jesus as the center of our lives, we won't spend time wallowing in our guilt or struggling with fear of man. Rather, we will dispense grace. We will be great grace dispensers. And we will send grace and kindness that may be undeserved to those who have harmed us because we realize that that's what's happened to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, a life that prioritizes the gospel recognizes that Jesus is worthy of being at the center of your life. My prayer is that that will be true of us this week. 
as we continue to live by faith in this great Lord. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.